we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And what we're going to be doing this week is playing for you the presentations from a panel we had recently on an issue that is called gatekeeper countries. And what that means in the immigration business is the countries that migrants pass through on their way to the destination countries. In other words, countries either bordering on or on the way to the United States or Europe or, frankly, Israel, Australia, any place migrants are going. And the point of the panel is that it's essential for the destination countries like the United States or Europe to work with these gatekeeper countries in order to get their cooperation to help protect the borders of the destination countries. It's almost like pushing your borders outwards. The Europeans have pursued the strategy more consistently and systematically than we have in the United States, but we have three speakers who know a good deal about this and are going to be offering their presentations. The full panel, including Q&A at the end, is available at our site, cis.org. What we're going to be doing for this podcast is just presenting the actual presentations from the speakers. Our first speaker is Victor Marshai, who is the director of the Migration Research Institute in Budapest and is a visiting fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies and is actually writing a piece on this issue of gatekeeper countries. In general, the topic, I would like to tell that uh, everything you can blame on me because it was my, my concept and ex- actually my <laughs> research topic, which is conducted here in, uh, in the CIS. And just to shift the research question and the, the hypothesis, the main question for me was in the comparison of the, the US and the European migration crisis, that in the fiscal year of 2022, more than 2 million uh, illegal broad border crossing happened in the southwest border of the, the United States, right? In the last year, 2020, in the uh, European Union, uh, external borders, not more than 330,000 uh, illegal border crossing happened. So the difference is almost eight times. And the question for me was that what's the main reason behind this? Because Last year was also, uh, let's say, a tragic year in Europe, uh, a huge increase, almost 70% increase in the number of illegal border crossing, and still the numbers are much lower in the European Union. While we can see that Europe actually has more open border uh, comparing with the United States, many sea borders, which is easy access, we could see how easily and sometimes in a tragic way the Mediterranean can be passed by uh, illegal uh, border crossers. There's a prolonged crisis since uh, 2013, when actually the 
First, the Kosovonian and across the central Mediterranean route, the Africans started to arrive in a big number to the European Union. And uh, there uh, is a huge crisis in the direct European neighborhood, which actually started with the Arab Spring and uh, COVID-19, some state collapse that happens, for example, in Syria and in Libya, but also the food crisis, which is uh, in Africa and very, very visible, the inflation and economic wars. And it's also important to underline the lack of consensus between uh, certain EU states. And still, still, as I mentioned, the, the numbers are much lower. And according to my understanding and research, which was also supported my stay and, and the interviews and the research conducted in DC, is definitely the role of gatekeeper countries in this context. A little bit about conceptual framework, which is, of course, very boring for ordinary audience, but for us as researchers, but the, the most important part of the the whole study, that in practice and policy, this gatekeeper issue is very old in the case of the European Union, but it's almost unknown in migration studies and in the whole academic literature. If you try to Google and try to find articles and theoretical background, you can easily find what is not a gatekeeper issue. It's not uh, the gatekeeper states of Africa, you know, which uh, is a much more a political term, nothing about migration. It's not uh, Operation Gatekeeper, which perhaps sounds um, more familiar for the American audience because it was conducted by uh, the United States itself. And even uh, the, the, the role of small EU states within the Schengen zone. What is much more gatekeeper issue is somehow a geographic approach. We can make a distinction, of course, between countries of origin, uh, transit countries and uh, destination countries. Gatekeeper countries are concentrated on transit routes, as Mark mentioned. So somewhere mid between the, the countries of origin and countries of de destination, even if they can serve as a countries of origin. There's a uh, thematic approach. Gatekeeper issues, definitely the part of migration critique, mig migration realist approach, which underlie the importance of stop or reduction of the flow of irregular arrivals, which is not natural in all aspects of migration studies, to say at least. It's definitely the part of externalization of uh, migration policy, some outsourcing of the combat against uh, illegal migration. And to certain extent, it's also the, the part of the securitization, because of course, we want to stop illegal migration, consider that the arrival of a huge mass of people is not only an opportunity, for example, the economy, if it's at all, but also demonstrate uh, challenges and threats for the security. As, as Todd Bensman, you know, argued, for example, in his book, books, we can say. Yeah, and it's also policy practice, uh, how EU and the uh, European states and also the United States started to, to implement policies to meet, uh, in collaboration with third countries to, to mitigate the flow of illegal migrants. So what we can state that gatekeeper countries are entities that which lays on the transit routes towards the destination countries or region. They are relatively closed, or in most cases, in the di direct neighborhood of destination countries. And they have some capacities and intention to mitigate the flow of illegal mass migration because there can be states there, but it's almost impossible, you know, to cooperate them if they, if they don't want. They can be also the countries of origin, as, as I mentioned, but it's not their main characteristics. But the main question, how they can help to stop the flow of certain countries' citizens. And if you have a look at the certain countries in the context of Europe, they are Turkey, Morocco, 
Libya or Serbia or even Niger. This is why we should be very cautious when we say that uh, when we say that the, the gatekeeper countries are the direct neighborhoods of certain states. But in the case of uh, the United States, Mexico, Guatemala, actually the, the other triangle countries. What are the practical considerations, ladies and gentlemen? It's almost impossible to defense just a thin red line on the map. So border protection, physical border barriers are very important and an integral part of any uh, border protection. But only with fences stopping arrival of hundreds of thousands of million people, it's almost impossible. Another important consideration that if people manage to get in the European Union or the United States, after it, it's almost impossible to somehow relocate them back to third countries or countries of origin. In the case of EU, it's, it's very evident that independently whether they have any legal background to get any form of protection or refugee status, if you have already in the Schengen zone, you have between 80-85% chance to stay there actually for years, if not forever. Gatekeeper countries can help to outsource long and costly asylum procedures, and it demonstrates a lower expenditure of, for maintenance. It's easy to realize that maintaining a family in the middle of uh, the United States or in Mexico or in uh, Egypt is, is much, much lower, and there are huge differences between them. It's also about the, uh, and, and back to the arriving people, it's the part of the deterrence policy. Because, you know, if there's a significant chance that you will be stuck in the transit countries without reaching uh, your destination countries, you will consider twice whether you are paying thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars and euro to leave your country and, and try to, to get in uh, a certain other state. There is higher possibility for return because these countries are much closer and not only geographically, but also in, uh, in many cases in culture and social term to the, the countries of origin. So it's also a possibility for return, which, for example, from the United States or the, the European Union, it's, it's less and less possibility for this. Also, among the practical consideration is that it's a huge toolkit and very wide to, to collaborate with states, because in this context, states are uh, negotiating with states, not with NGOs, not with other organizations, which sometimes extremely complicated. And from diplomacy across development assistance, trade, and humanitarian assistance, there are many instruments on the table during these negotiations. In general, there are two possible ways and approach for these negotiations. One is the stick and carrot policy, which was very evident in the migrant protection protocols, the remaining Mexico program, offering something and threatening by something, or it was uh, similar also in the, the EU-Turkey statement which is, of course, not the, the nicer way of politics, but sometimes these are the things how it's going, which can be more fruitful, perhaps, and it's, it's, there are more and more examples for this, and which can let somehow a win-win situation is an assistance for the, the gatekeeper countries to stop arrivals and people even before they reach these countries. Austria, Hungary, and Serbia just made a, a, a triple partial agreement in October, to support the defense of the Serbian border patrol, not in the Serbian-Hungarian border, in which case, of course, Belgrade was reluctant because they didn't want to be a parking lot for illegal migrants, but in the North Macedonian-Serbian border, which also interests for Serbia. And we saw similar agreements in the one and a half year between UK and France, 
But there are also examples from the, the, the U.S. migration policy, for example, in this southern border plan between 2014-15, when the United States provided assistance for Mexico to strengthen border security in its southern border, literally the, the Mexican-Guatemalan border. How about the implementation? Perhaps it's the, the most interesting part and uh, the part where you can uh, debate as most the, the theory. The EU and the member states has long history uh, and tradition that the outside world arrived to <coughs> Europe. We can mention the Huns, the Germans, Arabs, Hungarians, of course, Mongols, Ottoman, Russians. And we should mention also colonization, which established very strong connection between Europe and uh, the neighboring world. So actually, what is definitely on the table that in the strategic thinking of European uh, policymakers, the cooperation with third countries, gatekeeper countries, even if they don't call them as gatekeeper countries, is, is always on the table. We can mention a different example. Nicolette will speak about Turkey. But just about the effectiveness of it, currently now, ladies and gentlemen, there are 9 million immigrants in, in Egypt. And it's 3 million people plus if we compare the numbers before COVID-19 pandemic, which geopard is a lot of economy not only in the, the developer, but also in the developing world. And still, Egypt is ready to, to cooperate with, uh, with the European Union and stop these people. In Libya, there are between 600,000 and one and a half million. And they are not just keeping people there. That, but for example, the, the Moroccan Coast Guard is very active to stop people crossing. Just last year, 40,000 people was captured by the Moroccan Coast Guards on the sea, and they were brought back to the, the shores of Morocco. And if we compare the numbers, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that, uh, for example, the, the EU provides uh, half a billion dollar, a little bit more development assistance to support the migration policy of Morocco. And if, if we compare that hundreds of thousands of people for this money are stayed and kept in Morocco, perhaps it's, a, it's not a very costly deal for us. What about the United States? And uh, this is my last slide. It's interesting to see, but in the whole strategic thinking and theoretical thinking of the, the United States, mass illegal migration is a relatively new challenge because it's emerged in the 80s. So if you compare these decades, the, the centuries of European Union, uh, it's understandable why in some aspects Europe is much further in the, in the solutions, even if sometimes we don't feel it. The ocean shield concept, and this is my experience in this, is still very strong in the, the strategic thinking of the, the United States. And there is limited geopolitical attention towards the South. It's changing in the last 10 years, but still the, the feeling that, you know, the Atlantic and the, the Pacific Ocean provides us a, a lot of defense, you know, it's still in the, in the mind. And as I mentioned, there are efforts in the last, mainly in the last decade to, to start to collaborate with these the third countries. And we can mention also, you know, the root causes issue. We'll see how it works or, or the, the latest Darien uh, agreement. But there's no any systematic consideration how to who, who help uh, and support these gatekeeper countries. So a long-term solution and a mid-term solution is needed. Long-term strategies is needed. And both the EU and the United States should focus more on these gatekeeper countries and the win-win solution part of this story. Our second speaker is Nicolette Penzvalto, who's the director of research at the Migration Research Institute in Budapest. Thank you for the opportunity. It's a great honor for me to be here uh, today. 
as uh, Mark has mentioned, I'll bring in a, a European perspective and I will talk about uh, Turkey as a gatekeeper country. First, I provide you a brief geographical and the recent historical overview. Uh, then I will introduce the March 2016 EU-Turkey statement on migration. And at the end, I'll evaluate the deal a bit. So Turkey has uh, a unique geostrategic position, which uh, makes it uh, important for both the United States and Europe for different reasons. As for Europe, Turkey plays a dual role. On the one hand, it is a very important bridge or transit country. It's enough to think of uh, energy policy and the transit of uh, oil and natural gas from the post-Soviet region and the Middle East. And on the other hand, when uh, speaking about different kinds of flows, for example, mass irregular migration, the Europe wants Turkey to play the role of a buffer or more like an insulator state rather than a bridge. Turkey's geographical location has also contributed to the fact that uh, the country has become the host of the largest number of refugees in the world. According to the data of UNHCR, 3.8 million refugees are residing in Turkey. Most of them, about 3.5 million people, are from Syria. Turkey is a neighboring country of Syria. Uh, that's why it is affected so much from the war started in 2011. And the others are mainly from Afghanistan, Iraq, and Iran. The European Union uh, realized the significance of Turkey as a transit or insulator state in 2015 quite quickly, at the peak of the European migration and refugee crisis. As you can see on the map, uh, in the year of 2015, more than 885,000 irregular migrants arrived from Turkey to the continent via the so-called Eastern Mediterranean migration route. Most of them, about half a million people, were from uh, Syria, but there were about 200,000 Afghans and uh, almost 100,000 Iraqi citizens as well. This uh, mass wave of irregular migrants caught Europe completely off guard. It soon became obvious that it was uh, necessary to uh, come to an agreement with Turkey to stop this inflow. This led in uh, March 2016 to the so-called EU-Turkey statement. This uh, nine points long document was a political statement and uh, not a legally binding uh, treaty. The statement stated that all new irregular migrants crossing from Turkey into Greek island will be returned to Turkey. And Turkey uh, agreed to take any necessary measures to prevent illegal crossings. After the signing of this agreement, the number of irregular arrivals dropped uh, significantly, as you can see on the slide as well. The blue line is for uh, 2015 and the orange one is for 2016, and it is in a monthly breakdown. What did Turkey get in exchange? Well, money and uh, vague promises. As for the letter, uh, I unfortunately don't have the time to go into details. The remaining points of the statement uh, are about the acceleration of Turkey's uh, visa liberalization roadmap, its EU accession process, a voluntary humanitarian admission scheme that will be activated by the EU, and cooperation in, in Syria. And let's say that what happened in, in these regards has uh, not fulfilled uh, Ankara's expectations. But what they have received is uh, money, 3.3 plus 3 billion, billion euros under the facility for refugees in Turkey. And uh, since then, in 2020, an additional 3 billion euros were allocated for the same uh, humanitarian purposes. It is important to note that uh, assistance provided within the framework of the facility is project-based. So this money does not go directly to the Turkish uh, government. The use of the funds 
is managed by a steering committee chaired by the European Commission and uh, with the participation of uh, representatives of the member states. Most of the projects are implemented by international uh, NGOs, so the whole process is very uh, transparent, thoroughly planned and uh, monitored. What was this money spent for? You can see several uh, examples. An important uh, background information is that uh, Turkey provides the Syrians under temporary protection, free access to education and healthcare. And uh, there are the examples, for example, uh, more than 130 new schools uh, were built, uh, 7.2 million vaccination doses were provided to refugee children, and uh, these are not COVID-19-related uh, vaccination. There is a debate uh, on whether this amount of money is much or not. I would argue that taking everything into account, it is not that much at, at all. Uh, just to add several more pieces of data, about 45% of Syrians are uh, under 18 years old, and almost about 90% of the working Syrians work in the informal economy, so they don't pay uh, taxes and don't uh, contribute to the state budget this way. Of course, the EU-Turkey agreement was not the sole uh, measure introduced by the EU as a reaction to the migration crisis. In parallel, Greece and uh, several other member states uh, threatened border control. Fences were built all around the continent. That also contributed to the closing of uh, the so-called Balkan migration route. And uh, since 2015, Turkey has also built uh, walls on its eastern borders with Syria and Iran. Is the Turkey still working, would we ask? Well, uh, sort of. Turkey suspended uh, readmissions due to COVID-19 in uh, 2020. And then as a response, uh, Greece designated Turkey as a safe third country for the citizens of, for example, Syria, Afghanistan and uh, Somalia, which means that uh, it doesn't accept asylum applications from the citizens of these countries if they are coming through Turkey. However, uh, what is the uh, most probably the, the most important for the EU is that the number of irregular crossings has remained relatively low. In 2020 and 2021, it was about uh, 200,000 irregular crossings, and last year it was uh, a little bit about 42,000. These uh, relatively low numbers uh, can be partly thanks to the EU's uh, financial support that helps Syrians to start a new life in Turkey, which uh, they don't want to risk for the uncertain. And it is also the result of the stricter border control introduced by uh, most of the actors concerned. And of course, it is uh, thanks to the great extent to uh, Turkey's hospitality. Uh, why I emphasize this uh, last one? Because uh, there is a growing dissatisfaction in the Turkish society with the presence of uh, the refugees. We have uh, surveys uh, clearly showing this tendency. The refugee issue has become uh, one of the topics of the ongoing Turkish election campaign uh, as well. The Turkish people don't want to bear this burden alone forever, which is uh, totally uh, understandable, I think. Even more so because uh, Turkey has been suffering with an economic uh, crisis right now. And uh, at some point, this uh, situation may drive the country's leadership to, to a reckless move, uh, for example, repealing the, the temporary protection regime. So I think this is something we should definitely watch out for in the future. To sum up, um, the EU has outsourced the Syrian refugee crisis to Turkey. From the EU's uh, point of view, the deal has been uh, effective, uh, but it can be criticized from a normative uh, point of view. 
It is also important to keep in mind that this deal will uh, most probably not last forever. So uh, we should need to think about how we could make the EU-Turkey cooperation on migration uh, sustainable. And at the end, um, I think, not surprisingly, as Victor also mentioned, the right combination of sticks and, and carrots uh, are required. And that's what I wanted to share with you Thank you for your attention. Our third speaker is Christopher Landau, who was ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Mexico under Trump and dealt with many of these issues, obviously, as ambassador in getting Mexico to cooperate with the United States in enforcing immigration laws. When Mark first asked me to discuss uh, gatekeeper countries, I have to admit I was a little bit hesitant, not because I don't think that it can play a vital role in a comprehensive migration strategy, but because I don't think it is a silver bullet. And I'm always concerned when the United States has an issue, a problem, and tries to outsource it, to use the word that Nicolette just used. I am firmly of the view that we need to be in control of our own destiny and do what we can within our own borders where we don't have to be asking people for favors. And certainly, I think it's important as part of a comprehensive strategy to try to reduce illegal population flows, which I think are going to be continuing in the 21st century, kind of taking the long view of things as, as transportation gets easier. But I think, in essence, as long as people can come to the United States illegally and obtain very high-paying jobs and other benefits, those flows are going to continue. So I certainly think that gatekeeper countries is a piece of the puzzle, but I don't think it should ever be viewed as some kind of silver bullet to solving it. And I, I you know, the, the same issue kind of goes for, for drugs that, that we kind of, I think a lot of times we have problems in this country. We say, well, you know, really this is Mexico's problem and, and, and Mexico, you need to fix this. I don't think the fact that all these people are entering the United States illegally is Mexico's problem, although Mexico certainly has, you know, a lot to, to do with it. Just thinking about gatekeepers in particular and Mexico, I think it's an interesting concept because until very recently, I don't think anybody would have thought of Mexico as a gatekeeper on migration issues. In historically, and mass illegal migration, I think as Victor pointed out, is a relatively recent phenomenon overall. And then for most of the 80s, 90s, into the 2000s, it was overwhelmingly a Mexican issue on our southern border. The, the, the people who were coming across were Mexicans, and the system was kind of set up to deal with Mexicans coming into our country. One of the big changes, and I think this really started uh, in the Obama administration with the, the underage, unaccompanied minors crisis in about 2014, 2015, is that people started coming from all over the world particularly from the Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, the so-called Northern Triangle countries of Central America, but really from all over. And actually, non-Mexicans, for the first time ever, starting in the, the, the last few years, have actually, you know, it varies from month to month, but become a majority of the people crossing our southern border. So all of a sudden, we have a very new migration issue that is not kind of your father's or your mother's migration issue from 30 or 40 years ago. And I don't think we have in place the tools or even really the mindset to, to deal with that. And I don't think we've come to terms with that. So I think I'd like to focus for a moment on 
what happened in, in 2018, 2019, and, and, and I think some of the opportunities it opens, because certainly as ambassador to Mexico starting in 2019, this was the way I looked at the issue to say, one of the reasons I wanted to be ambassador to Mexico is that I thought it was important for the United States to talk to Mexico in the sense of saying, this is a shared problem now. You are no longer just a migrant producing country, but you are a migrant transit country. So all of a sudden, there's a whole new set of issues for you, Mexico, and a lot of common ground for us to work together on issues that you might have seen before as a U.S. versus Mexico issue. There's still a sense in Mexico that it is a migrant-friendly country, and you know, lots of Mexican politicians, even from the party of President López Obrador, you know, still insist, you know, there's a human right to migration. I used to say, well, where does that come from? I thought one of the, I'm a lawyer, one of the basic characteristics of sovereignty of any country is the ability to control its borders. I, I may love French culture and identify as a Francophile. That doesn't give me the right to go and live and work in Paris just because I, I want to. I mean, every country has, that, that, that is the, the, one of the inherent attributes of sovereignty is the right to control who comes into your country. So I said, it's important that the discourse in Mexico, which is obviously very sensitive about its own sovereignty issues, include these kinds of dimensions and include the fact that it is not a humanitarian or compassionate approach to be putting policies in place that encourage people to come illegally. I mean, as I think Victor mentioned, this is something that is extremely costly to people. They're, they're often basically entering indentured servitude to put up the money to make this journey, which is also a very, very dangerous journey, which many people are killed. So it's interesting just to focus on, I think, the U.S.-Mexico migration crisis of 2018-2019 as kind of an example of what can be done. So President López Obrador was elected in 2018, came into office on December 1st of that year, and, you know, from a, a, a left-wing party, new party in Mexico, and some of the elements of that party were very much trying to set a different note than the United States and, and said, you know, our Central American brothers and sisters, you know, you're welcome in Mexico and we will embrace you with open arms. And so what happened? Caravans started forming mass migration. Even though Trump was still in the United States, you started to see mass migration from Central America, you know, into Mexico. But did they stop in Mexico? No, of course not. They had no intention of just going to Mexico. They used Mexico as a transit point to go to the United States. And so I think President López Obrador then kind of had egg on his face because his kind of open border policy towards the Central American brothers and sisters was obviously just a um, something that uh, that a mechanism that made it easier for people to get into the United States. This is one of the points I make when people say, oh, we got to address root causes. The root causes in Central America didn't change one bit before and after this migration flow. There was no hurricane. There was no coup. There was no, you know, crackdown along ethnic or religious or political lines. It was simply a change in migration policy, in that case by Mexico. And I said, look, what really drives this fundamentally is just like any other human decision. People are economically rational and they make a choice, you know, what, you know how much are they going to have to spend and what are their odds of getting into, you know, into Mexico, across Mexico and into the United States and successfully getting in there. They're always making that that determination. And. So I think President López Obrador's strategy in, in, in 2018 unleashed this crisis. And President Trump then announced in May of 2019, when we started, we were starting to get, you know, 140,000 people a month at the border attempting to cross illegally. He said, look, enough is enough. And he basically said he's going to impose these tariffs on Mexico. 
And it's interesting, every single one of my predecessors as ambassador to Mexico signed a letter saying, oh my gosh, you can't do this. We never mix migration and, and, and commercial issues, which I thought, where does that come from? I mean, so, since when do you not use leverage that you have in a bilateral relationship? Mexico uses migration leverage all the time with us. It just seems ridiculous that we had kind of compartmentalized these these various issues in our relationship with Mexico. Anyway, be that as it may, President Trump did that. And you know, before he knew it, the Mexicans had sent a, a delegation to Washington and we worked out an agreement with them. And you know, that, that, that meant Mexico was actually really for the first time in its history going to uh, take a more active role in controlling these migrant flows. Again, I think that corresponded to public opinion in Mexico that the Mexicans were not happy either that their country was getting used as a doormat by people from you know, China, India, Bangladesh, Kazakhstan, Congo, Cuba, you name it. It's like the United Nations down there on the border. So you know, I think there are lots of opportunities to work with Mexico. One of the things that was put into place in late 2018, early 2019, was the remain in Mexico policy. And basically, that was a reflection of the fact that our asylum system is broken. Our asylum system, as you know, is kind of a, a carve out to our normal migration rules. We, we have normal rules about how you can migrate legally and illegally. And then we kind of created this safe harbor for people who were fleeing a fear, a reasonable, well-founded fear of imminent you know, death if they were on the basis of certain characteristics, if they remain in their countries. Well, obviously that system was getting abused by people who were just economic migrants, but who knew what buzzwords to say so that they would get processed into the American asylum system. If enough people do that at once, you don't get a hearing for four years then. And then you were being allowed into the United States, which obviously was a huge kind of loophole to our entire immigration mechanism and was really incentivizing a lot of these flows. So Mexico agreed to a system where those people, instead of being allowed into the United States to wait for their asylum hearing, were, were required to remain in Mexico. What that did almost overnight is it dried up those flows. And so I think Mexicans had been somewhat concerned that they would be stuck with this huge migrant population. Those fears really didn't materialize because once people knew this, again, their, their economically rational uh, cost-benefit analysis changed. And I think in this sense, Mexico may be somewhat different than Turkey and Syria, because Syria really was, again, I, I don't purport to know a lot about the Syrian conflict, but at least initially, there was a very brutal war going on in Syria. So some of the people might have actually fled for those reasons. There, there's no similar issue in, in, in Central America. So anyway, I, you know, th this is certainly a, a change. You know, once the Biden administration came in and basically indicated that it had no interest in limiting illegal migration... As far as I can tell, the Mexicans have basically given up as well. I think their thought is, hey, we're not going to be you know, more Catholic than the Pope. If you guys don't care about this, why should we? And so that's pretty much where we are right now. I've always been a little bit surprised that Remain in Mexico became the outcome because Remain in Mexico to me is a, a, a kind of second best approach where these people are in the U.S. asylum system. And so they're you know just waiting in Mexico for their time to come up. It would seem to me that if you just think about asylum in terms of what it's supposed to be doing, it's supposed to be shelter you give somebody who's immediately fleeing for their lives. I mean, I think this came up in, in what Victor and Nicolette were saying, that it, it seems odd for people to cross third countries where they don't have those imminent threats of danger and then apply for asylum in their preferred country. That seems to be more of a traditional immigration issue, not an asylum issue, which is just give me immediate 
shelter from the immediate risk I'm facing. Anyway, for whatever reason, in Mexico, the idea of safe third country just became political poison. They, they, they would not accept that under any circumstances, even though I thought, in a sense, that is more respectful of their sovereignty to say, look, you guys, you know, you, you can't, for our domestic purposes, we regard Mexico as a safe third country, and that disentitles you to apply for asylum if you cross Mexico and come here. I think that's a cleaner way than remain in Mexico. But be that as it may, remain in Mexico served a very useful purpose. And I think the Mexicans could see that as well. So I, I do think that there is a lot to be said for exploring gatekeepers more as part of our migration policy. One thing I was saying to Mark just before the start, and this will be my final observation, is that it is important, I think, to recognize that Mexico can play a gatekeeping role, but it shouldn't all be on Mexico. A lot of people are are flying in from Europe to countries like Ecuador or Brazil that have much looser visa requirements and then making their way over land through six or seven countries, Colombia, Panama. I mean, there's a very narrow funnel for them to go through. The, the, the idea that we kind of wait until they arrive in Mexico, where we have a 2,000-mile border, to really get serious about stopping these flows seems to me ridiculous. I think this should be the number one issue in our relationship with Panama, with Costa Rica, with Nicaragua. What can they do? I mean, there's so many potential places there where these flows can be stopped and discouraged. So anyway, I, you know, I think it's something certainly worth considering, but I, I think it is a mistake to think that this is the magic bullet that will solve the, the crisis from our point of view. That's it for this week's episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. As I said before, the whole panel is available on our website, cis.org, including the Q&A session at the end. If you get this podcast on a platform that allows you to rate or review, please give us a five-star review. And I hope you'll tune in next week. Thank you.